So the four pillars, you know, are leadership, culture, spirituality, and nature. They are the four things that I spend the most time thinking about. You know, if I think about anything, it's one of those four things. If we are to reach an age of union, um, we have to have the intention of union. The things that we that we that we have to put thought into the things that we do. We go on autopilot. We 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 choose what we eat. We choose how we transport ourselves without without thinking about it. The more we we include intention and empathy and compassion at the very early stages, then that's the way we think, that's the way we speak, and then that becomes the way we act. Uh, and that's really the the idea behind the book is to uh, fuel our action uh, with positive intention. That's Dax Da Silva talking about his new book, Age of Union. Dax is the founder and CEO of Lightspeed, which went public earlier this year and currently has a market cap of $3 billion. Their mission is to bring cities to life, and they do this by providing small and medium businesses with the tools they need to succeed. He also created Never Apart, a nonprofit cultural center in Montreal whose mission is to create social change and spiritual awareness through art. Now, how does someone become interested in so many vastly different worlds? Tech, culture, nature, spirituality, and leadership. It's simple. They're not different, at least in his mind. He sees them as interconnected. The diversity of those themes is what makes Dax, Dax. Each pillar represents a different chapter in the story of his life. I'm your host, Moa Keith, and my job is to walk you through that story. Let's start with technology and art. Question, which major tech company running our lives had design and simplicity as their primary differentiators from the beginning? And the right computer. A friendly, easy computer that isn't an eyesore, but rather sits in your desk with the beauty of a tensor lamp. The right computer will be a bicycle for the mind. And what if, instead of it being in the right hands, it was in everyone's hands? Everyone in the world. It's called Macintosh. Dax was eight years old, just hanging out at home when the doorbell rang. It was the 80s, and his father had brought home the original Mac. That computer would forever change the way Dax thought about technology and design. The Mac was a, a really fascinating introduction to our home because it was unlike, a, unlike any computer I'd ever seen. It, it almost had an element of magic to it for me. Uh, the way things were named, the, the way things pl were plugged in together, uh, the way that things were depicted on screen. You know, my dad probably brought home a Mac when it was 1984, 85. Uh, so the early, early days. Uh, he was a graphic designer uh, at work. They were a little bit forward on technology, so he got a Mac. And at the time, those 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 Macs were able to you could pack them up in a bag and put all the pieces in a bag and carry it around and carry it home. And so. Uh, I was just absolutely fascinated. It didn't compare to any other computer I'd seen. This is Made at McGill, an origin story podcast about McGill University's makers. 
aka entrepreneurs and innovators. How did these students, researchers, and alumni figure out how to make the world a better place? Well, it's complicated, but keep listening. It's a good story. This show is brought to you by the Miguel Dobson Center for Entrepreneurship. Our mission is to inspire, teach, and develop world-class entrepreneurs. You can learn more at miguel.ca slash Dobson. The next part of Dax's journey and another pillar in his book is nature. He was growing up in Vancouver at a time when a lot of horrible things were being done to ecosystems, and one day he decided to do something about it. He was 17 years old when he drove to the west coast of Vancouver Island to protest the clear-cutting of old-growth forest at Clockwood Sound. I think I've always had a... Uh, a affinity to nature and, and a, a repulsion for for when we are destructive towards nature, and the clear cutting that was happening of the old growth forests in the in the nineties in, in British Columbia, where basically cathedrals of you know these 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 hundreds and thousands of year old trees were just being you know chopped down for for toilet paper. It was just it was something that that alerted the whole province, especially when they got to the most precious areas like the Clockwood Sound, to to know that these could never be replaced, and that uh, you know, so to take that journey out there and to see them and experience them and fight for them uh, was something that uh, that um, expressed the fire that I felt and that other people felt when they were seeing destruction of nature by humankind, uh, and that extended in my heart for animals and and uh and you and that's you know you'll find that throughout the book that we should be guardians and should start to think of ourselves as as guardians and and enter an era of guardianship as opposed to an era of extraction and exploitation good evening there were no chainsaws echoing through the ancient rainforests of clackwood sound today Loggers were prevented from getting to work this morning by the first blockade of the summer. Now, if this seems a little familiar, it is. The Clackwood area was the setting for similar confrontations last year at this time. The difference this go-around is a government decision to allow logging in two-thirds of the area. Now, a court injunction forbids blockade protests in the Sound, but no one, including a federal member of parliament, seems to be paying it any attention. One of the protesters who refused to move was federal MP Sven Robinson. We can't allow this magnificent old-growth forest to be logged. It's a tragic mistake, and I hope that uh, my actions, along with those of many other Canadians, will persuade the government to reconsider its decision and to show the same kind of leadership on this issue that they showed on the Tatsunshini. Are you prepared, though, to be arrested to make that point? I'm here on the road this morning. Well, one of the interesting things about that journey was that uh, myself and, and the friends that went with me, we drove to Clackwood Sound and the route to Clackwood Sound drove through many clear cuts. And so you were literally driving through miles and miles and miles of moonscape where there had been thriving forests and rivers and where it was completely gray and dead and everything was dead. And then we got to Carmana Valley, we got to Clackwood Sound and it was just these pristine watersheds of life 
And I was, and so the journey to go to Clockwood Sound and to the protests and to all of that was was prefaced by just the absolute destruction that we had brought to these other areas. And we're like, we have to save these last remaining watersheds, and we did. That's right. They won that battle. In July 1995, the first significant change in government policies occurred when all of the 127 unanimous recommendations made by the scientific panel on Clockwood Sound were accepted by the Forests Minister of British Columbia and the Environment Minister on behalf of the NDP government. Soon after that, Dax was studying at the University of British Columbia, and he completed a year of computer science before realizing it wasn't for him. What he really wanted to use this period of his life for was to explore his deep connection with art and spirituality. As a child, I was always somebody that did a lot of drawing and painting. Uh, you know, I come from a family of, of artists, uh, artists and designers, um, you know, art curators. There's a lot of uh, seems, you know, people, people that were tailors and seamstresses and um, published newspapers, a lot of create creatives. Um, and also, you know, there's a there's a there's a big heritage of um, spiritual people. You know, we were raised Catholic We're from the, you know, from Goa in India, which is Catholics that were 500 years before they were Catholic. They were they were Hindu. Uh, and my family on my dad's side was always. Um, a part of the Brahmin caste. So, uh, you know, took care of the temples. Um, later, when we were con- converted to Catholicism by, by, the, by, the, um, by the Portuguese, they were t- caretakers of the churches and chapels. And so this interest in art, this interest in spirituality, I think is something that uh, I've, was always something inside of me. Uh, when I took computer science, I think that, that the reason for that was it was just a continuation of me becoming a programmer at age 13 uh, and building software all through my teens and 20s. And I felt, okay, well, the obvious thing for me to do is to continue into sciences at UBC and go into computer science. But after a year of, of, of that experience, I realized uh, I'm not an engineer. Um, Four years of becoming an engineer is, is, is really not the way I approach software. I approach it from a user interface and design perspective. And I really, really, what I want to do with my university years is learn about the world, that world learn about the aspects of the world that, uh, that, that I'm drawn to. And so I took a year off, I came back, and I did art history and, and religious studies. And, and that, I think, really opened up the world that I was looking for. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, our relationship with creativity and our relationship and our search for, for, for spirituality. Although he stopped formally studying computer science, he kept learning on the side and building software for people. After noticing there were a lot of requests from small and medium businesses, he decided to build a company to solve their problems, Lightspeed. At this point in the story, the pillar of leadership takes the spotlight. Dax began empowering other people, including both the people on his team and the businesses that Lightspeed powers. That's how they make cities come alive, by empowering the owners of retail businesses. One of the reasons their company has been able to maintain such a strong culture of diversity and inclusivity is that it started off that way. Interestingly, the so the early 
early members of the of the Lightspeed team were either people in the LGBTQ community that I knew, or at the or at the very same time um, I had converted to Judaism. Uh, it was sort of an a, a, an extension of my of my studies in religious studies. I had studied the Abrahamic religion, so uh, and 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 felt you know uh, felt a great connection to Judaism and, and made my conversion when I moved here to Montreal. So at the same time as Lightspeed was starting in the gay village. Uh, with a lot of people from the LGBTQ community, I was also, um, you know, going to 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 the Reform Jewish Temple and and, and embarking on on a on a conversion. And there was some overlap. There was people in the original Lightspeed team that were both part of the LGBTQ community and were accompanying me to to temples. So there was there was a bit of a uh, you know those circles uh, that uh, that that influenced the early the early days of of the company and. Uh, um, and then we started to, to to bring in bring people into the company that were that were outside those circles. You know, we started to we graduated to Craigslist, <laughs> and then we started to bring people in that uh, that um, that instead of working for a bank, came to that uh, you know post their they might have been Frontera they post their studies in Montreal decided to take up a job at this this uh, this crazy startup. Uh, before startups were really a thing in 2005, you know, so, um, so yes, the, the original team was pretty eclectic. Uh, and, but it was, I think it was founded on, on just this central idea that because it started with LGBTQ, it was from the, from the beginning, it was about inclusivity and everybody was different, you know, not just different because where they were LGBTQ, but because everybody was a character, you know? And so I think that was, that continues to, to this day. Building a company, leading, and empowering people isn't easy. Who does Dax turn to in hard times? His father. Here's a passage from the book. Even after hours of talking shop, my father never ended one of our phone calls without reminding me that I was not responsible alone for the success of my company. So in the early days of Lightspeed, I relied on my father as a mentor uh, later, as the company developed, there were people that were business advisors and uh, that were that or, you know were board members or that that sort of replaced um, uh, the centrality of my father. And I would still continue to always have, I still to this day have conversations with my father about spirituality. But early early days, uh, you know, the company he worked for, uh, and he was sort of the right hand man of the CEO and and sort of lived through. Uh, this manufacturing company's ups and downs, uh, and so a lot of the knowledge and the things he had seen at that company, he would he would transfer to me in these phone calls. And then from from the from a spiritual aspect, my father really impressed upon me that you cannot carry the burden of uh, of, of the company on your shoulders. You're the instrument, and you have to be a great instrument for the company. Uh, and that's uh, that's something that continually you need to remind yourself of, or you think that all of the successes of the company are yours. It also means all the failures are yours as well. Uh, and so, the reality is that none of it is because of you. It's all a part of. Uh, it's all a part of something greater. And your 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 best hope is to be the perfect conduit and instrument for the project. One of the reasons they've been able to maintain such a strong relationship is that they actively engaged in trying to understand each other from the start. Another passage from the book. 
My father, though emotional when I first told him, accepted my coming out and made a deal with me to engage in a form of cross-education. He would visit the Vancouver Gay and Lesbian Community Center if I visited and listened to the perspective of a Christian prayer group. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I came up to my father um, and he... He he had gone through, I think, a a period in his life where um, finding finding religion and finding uh, rebuilding himself, you know, through a spiritual journey um, was something actually we connected a lot on. Um, and he he worked he had um, explored different kind of Christian and Catholic groups, and uh, at the time he was uh, he was going to one. Um, and I connected with a lot of them. I mean, I was, was raised Catholic and, and, uh, connected with, with a lot of these groups. But at the same time, you know, as a, as a, a gay man that came out at 14 and had pretty strong conviction about it and, uh, was ready to, to reeducate his Christian friends on the things that we disagreed on. And, and, um, and so I was ready for him, for, for us to do a little bit of a bake-off. You know, you come to the gay and lesbian youth group and or the center and the library that was at the that was downtown, uh, which he loved. <laughs> My dad loves gay people. He didn't re- didn't realize that most of he didn't realize it until he looked stepped back and looked at the friends in his life. Most of his close friends were you know from the LGBTQ community when he thought about it, and uh, and then when I went to, when we went to the the Christian group and and they were they were so adamant that this element of me was not part of me, that it was something that was external to me that would, that could be removed. Didn't make sense to me or him. And so my father started to try to educate them and then he got kicked out of that group. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, it's, it, it, it illustrated, I think, um, it illustrated for him that their viewpoints came from a place of, not really maybe knowing any gay people or, 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 or these beliefs where, where, uh, well, who knows, but it, but it didn't, it didn't connect with either of us. Um, and actually we felt the obligation to educate them as much as we could. In 2014, Dax had been building Lightspeed for almost a decade. Two interesting things were happening at the same time. One, Lightspeed was moving offices, and two, he was burning out. Now, what do most people do when they're burning out? They book an all-inclusive vacation, go to a beach, and sip fruity cocktails. But not Dax Da Silva. He decided to treat his burnout by taking on another project, turning the old Lightspeed offices into a cultural center that would bring people together. And here's where the pillars of culture, spirituality, and leadership come back around. When we were moving the Lightspeed office uh, into the Garbage, uh, this office that we're sitting in, uh, the former Lightspeed office, the never, which is now never a part, there's this question around what it was going to become. Was it going to sell the building, have it become more condos, or, or was it going to take it and make it into this cultural center with sort of this spiritual intention to bring people together? And... I had in my mind as I as I sort of had this very vague idea, and it's it still sounds vague until you actually go to the center and see it in action, and then you're like, oh, this all makes sense. All these people from all this different, every, of every age and every background are here celebrating art and learning about each other. 
but be- but before it actually happens, it sort of sounds sort of out there, you know. And so, but it didn't sound out there to Michael Venus. Like if you invite Michael Venus and and uh, Anthony, who was the other other person that I had in mind on the music side, um, I sort of thought of them as archetypes of the kinds of people that I'd want in the as the kind of leaders that I would need. Um, and they were sort of drawn magnetically to the project, just as everybody that's been involved with the project's just sort of been drawn by this strange magnetism and vortex into this wonderful project, uh, which I think has uplifted a lot of people. And, you know, Michael, I think, has been, you know, involved in our artistic activation of all sorts. Uh, I know I knew him in Vancouver. Um, and, uh, you know, that, I think, was the perfect move for him, uh, for him to move from where he was in, in, in Toronto at the time uh, to Montreal to start this, and I don't think it would have been would would have been possible because he understood exactly what what you know what it could be. Dax invited Michael over for Thanksgiving dinner in Montreal, and told him about the plans to build Never Apart. Uh, and so that dinner conversation, I think, was um, it was it was it was strange because I I explained the project and and jokingly said, you know, would you move here for this? And he was like, I would. And that was it was about as simple as that. And his friend Anthony had actually applied for a sales position at Lightspeed. But Dax had other plans for him. Music director at Never Apart. I was like, yeah, I have a different job for you in mind. And <laughs> and uh, I think that that they just trusted, as I did, in something that had a lot of unknowns. We just had a building, which was... Uh, you know, I think that that, that the building in itself, um, if, I don't know if you've been to Never Apart, but the building itself has so much, uh, it just lets the imagination go, start running. So for creative people, um, the possibilities start to just, you know, explode. Uh, it's a big responsibility because you're like, we've got to do the right thing with this space. Otherwise, we're not with this, this, this thing that, this, that must reach its full creative potential. Uh, so to get two creative people in there and then have that circle grow. And, and that's, I think, part of the magnetism of, of why we had all these, these great collaborators come in uh, is because people would walk through the space and be like, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this. And that's um, and all in the spirit of change and, uh, and unity. And, and if people weren't on that page, uh, they just didn't come to the center. That idea from Thanksgiving dinner grew rapidly and created cultural ripple effects all over Montreal. But in the summer of 2018, Never Apart collaborated with a local festival to throw a really cool event and offer DJ lessons for women, transgender, and non-binary individuals. And even though the opening line of the event description stated that the event was open to everyone, a malicious reporter took the opportunity to spin a misleading but outrage-inducing headline, Interdiosum hétéro, forbidden to straight men. Dax writes, We learned that one cannot venture into the work of social change and progress without attracting forms of criticism and resistance from elements that profit from division. There's always these moments where you, you're... You have the best of in- you have the best of intentions, and you put all this positive energy out, and then uh, suddenly it, there's there's the world profits from a lot of division. You know, it's uh, you get 
target markets out of it. You get seg- people, you've segmented people, you separate people, and you inflame them. And, and this is how you, um, this is a profit center, you know, this is uh, sad. Uh, and so this, sometimes we get the backlash of this at Never Apart, where we're trying to be inclusive and be unified and people take something that we do, which is in this case was prioritizing um, DJ lessons. It was open. It was a DJ lesson for everybody, but we, prior, you know, we made sure that we invited uh, women, uh, people of color, uh, non-binary people, and, and made sure that it was a safe environment for for what is a pretty male-dominated sort of area, which is DJing in, 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 in the electronic music space. And, um, you know, the reporter sort of framed it as, you know, forbidden to straight men, and that's certainly not what it was, and it certainly wasn't what the audience and, and group was. But I think that these are, these are, um, these are moments where you realize that it's not going to be, you know, the, the, the course for a changemaker is not going to be this straight, this straight course that's going to be easy. You're going to go through all sorts of challenges and difficulties. It's whether it's a startup or a nonprofit or, 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 a, or a movement for change. It's uh, you go through these lows. You go through people that that uh, that, that misinterpret you or or misinterpret you on purpose uh, to frame you in a way that uh, that uh, that sells that's clickbait or sells you know newspapers. Um, and uh, um, that does not change your 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 ultimate purpose, your ultimate cause, your your intention for what you what you're trying to do. Uh, what it does do is it makes you stronger and it makes you more reflective of of how you go about turning these crises um, into opportunities. Um, but it can be scary because you know the weekend up we had a lot of people react on social media uh, that were uh, that followed this reporter's line of very hateful sort of uh, talk. It, it sort of dissipated the next day as he went on to another topic, but you know we were scared for the center, and we you know we added security the next weekend. So this is just the this is just the reality of change making. You make waves. We all want change. Nobody wants to change, and no, and fewer people want to lead change. And the reality is, we need people to lead change. It can't just be. A few people. It has to be as many people, uh, and so the reason I wrote the book is to give what I think are the ingredients for change. I think those four pillars, when thought uh, thought of together and holistically, when you start to take leadership, culture, spirituality, and nature, and you think about the diversity in each one, and then you start to take them out of their boxes and combine them into something holistic, and that powers action. So your intention is to unify those things and uh, empower something uh, like your individual choices. Change begins with our choices, and it begins with action. Uh, and so the book leads you through these four pillars. Uh, it takes you from you know how we can have, how we can be leaders in, in each different ways, or how our individual self empowerment um, can ignite us as change makers. Then it talks about identity, uh, th- culture, through identity, expression, behavior, all the potential for change in that. Then it talks about spirituality. How is everything connected? And how is it connected to a greater purpose? And then finally, it takes us to nature, the diversity of nature and the value of that, and how those first three must set us up for us to 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 become back in sync with nature and not continue on this trajectory where the planet can't sustain itself or us. And that's the story of Dax Da Silva. His new book, Age of Union, is available on Amazon or any bookstore. 
Hey, it's Mo. I hope you enjoyed that story. If you want easier access to upcoming episodes of Made at McGill, I recommend you subscribe to this podcast on whatever app you use. Also, do you have a wantrepreneur in your life? Maybe your Uncle Bill, who's always talking about his grand business ideas. Consider this. Find one episode in this podcast that you think could give them a slight push. The little nudge that they need to begin their journey as a maker. And have them listen to that episode. And if Uncle Bill ends up turning into the next Bill Gates, who changes the world and along the way becomes a genius billionaire philanthropist, hey, you can take all the credit. Thanks for listening.